Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. We're joined for one of our summer conversations, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation by Wendy Liu, who's written a really fascinating part memoir, part lifting the lid on working in tech. Uh, It's called Abolish Silicon Valley, and she joins us from San Francisco. Wendy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for inviting me. Um, So why don't we sort of start at the beginning uh, Abolish Silicon Valley is about your experience of both working in the tech industry and then leaving it. Maybe we should just start by saying, because I think it's important context, maybe, kind of how did you find yourself, how did you get into the tech industry? What took mm. you there? Yeah, so I would say the book is partly the story of how I fell in love with the industry and then how I fell out of love with it. And the story of how I, how I fell in love with it is, it's a pretty familiar one. I think I've, you know, I've heard this story from a lot of other people I know in tech. It's not the only way to fall in love with the industry, but what happened for me was that when I was about 12 years old, I started building websites on my computer. And from there, it, it didn't take very long before I just became completely engrossed in the whole culture around the internet, um, and I really felt like if it didn't really matter what else I did, as long as I was a good programmer, then I would be fine. And and I think at the at the time I just wasn't doing very well, and you know my life socially I didn't really have much to do except be at home and just do things on my computer. And so that was a bit of an escape from the world for me. It was a refuge. And from there, I think it, it it's a little bit hard to you know put together the pieces now just because they're. Looking back on it, I'm sure there are just so many ways of interpreting how, how this happened. But I got to the point where I thought, well, I just I, I want to be a programmer. And I know that in the tech industry, salaries are great. People are respected. I would get to work on something really interesting, something really special, um, and that I would be set for life. And that from there, I think I'd kind of internalize that, well, that means I'm better than everyone else who isn't able to get a good job in the tech industry. And this is something that definitely came out during college. Um, at my university, we at the beginning of the year we had these uh, just I don't know I, we call them frosh. I'm not sure if there's an equivalent in the UK, but it's you, you just ha- you just drink a lot of beer and then you like you I don't know shout these chants at each other. Where it's, it's like freshers' week. 
Sure, sure. Da- David Cameron, I'm not going to compare you to David Cameron, but he was in something called the Bullingdon Club. It, it, I'm sure it can't be as bad as the Bullingdon Club, can it, Jeff? I don't think so. <laughs> uh, it was definitely not as um, as elite as that, but uh, yeah. it was just, you know, b- because of the, the department you were in, the faculty you were in, you would be like, oh, you know, we're, we're, um, we're engineers or something, and we're so much better than like you arts kids who are all going to be making our burgers or something. A culture of superiority. Yeah. So you've you've laid out very clearly the sort of, the kind of beginnings and then you you gradually get into tech and eventually uh collaborate with some other people that you met at university to to do a startup before we get into that though i tell you one thing that really struck me in the book was that even as a 12 13 year old and i'm this really kind of blew me away because i knew about the the sort of elements of this in the tech industry but it was very striking how you experienced it you you already came across the sexism of the tech culture even as a even as a as you say a preteen i spent a lot of time around this one open source community and uh, it was just building this piece of um open source software so people could you know make websites and I initially, I, I found it because I was using it myself. And then I realized that I was spending a lot of time reading the forums. I might as well start posting. And then I eventually got invited to become a team member when I was 15. And the whole time I was anonymous on the internet. So I, my, you know, my username was gender neutral. I didn't reveal my age or my gender or where I was from. And that, that was pretty normal. There are a lot of people like that. But even then, um, it, with, within this community, um, once I kind of spent more time on it, it became very clear that, Almost everyone was male, um, and the way they talked about women was definitely a little othering. And so I, you know, I for a while I was like, oh, I'm just going to pretend I'm not who I am, just so that I I don't stick out. Um, and I think at the time the composition of the team, maybe like a few dozen people, was maybe 95 percent male, something like that. Um, and if there were any women when I joined, before I joined, definitely they they didn't reveal it. And after I joined, there was maybe one one or two. Um, but yeah, I think that, that, that stuck with me. And then I would go to open source conferences and it was very clear that, you know, this is a space mostly for men. Now the story of the book is the, if you like the sort of scales falling from your eyes about, you know, you go in with a relative, a very positive view of tech and, 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 and come out for reasons we'll get into of a much, much more skeptical view. Talk to us about your experience because I really enjoyed this part of the book. Talk to us about your experience of working at Google as an intern. You know, talk to us about what it was like because it's sort of you arrive and it's kind of this fantastic place with you know lovely free food and you know it's a kind of it seems like a great place to be and they claim to be incredibly progressive and you know you get to see the founders on every Thursday in a sort of ask you know kind of question time session. And then, but but sort of gradually, you get to be more skeptical. So, talk to us a little bit about that experience. Sure, yeah, and uh, it, it's funny because whenever I talk about this part of the book, depending on whether that person has a background in the tech industry or whether they don't, there's always just uh, you know two very predictable reactions. One one is just like, "Wow, I can't believe they actually had a slide um, from the people who <laughs> haven't been." Have never worked at Google, and then from the people who have, it's kind of it, usually it's a sense like, "Wow, how did you not realize things are so were weird?" Because wasn't it obvious from the get go? And it's like, yeah, yeah, you know, those are both very valid. Um, and I think what that demonstrates is that the tech industry, and especially a company like Google, is just it's there's such a bubble around it, and what seems normal within that bubble will seem so weird to someone outside of it. 
but my experience at Google, it was, um, it was, at, it was in 2013, summer of 2013. And around that time, um, Google was definitely seen as this great company. This was before all the scandals had started happening. A movie had actually just gone released called The Internship. And it was a, this really just weird comedy that featured Google and it was set on Google's campus. And I think that kind of sets the tone. We actually watched that movie um, as interns in a private screening um, our our first month at Google. And I think it was very, you know, in hindsight, it was very much like, oh, that's propaganda. They're trying to get you to think Google is this fun, quirky place that people want to work at. But anyway, um, yeah, my time at Google, I think it, it's pretty typical of tech companies uh, like in, in, in that space where they just put a lot of time and money into recruiting and um, into having the recruiter sell a certain vision of the company. So the whole first week was just recruitment events where, you know, they would tell you, Google's this amazing company. Here are all the cool things we do. Here's this really emotional marketing video that will make you cry about how Google is actually just helping so many people. Um, yeah. And I, you know, I'm a little bit embarrassed to admit that I did, I did cry a little bit because uh, they they have a very, very good marketing team. They're very good at figuring out how to tug at people's heartstrings. But at the end of it, I remember the thing, the, the thread that was kind of woven throughout was this idea that we were all very privileged to be at Google. And so we had insight to on insight in a lot of different things. And, you know, we got to hear from the founders personally, but what that translated into was we had to be very careful about what we said to other people. We can't tell outsiders. We can't tell them about the project we're working on. If it's secret, we can't, you know, tell them what the founders said at the last town hall, we definitely can't reveal any of the information we see in our emails or anything. Um, and I thought, okay, that's, I guess that makes sense, but that's a little bit weird. We're just interns. Uh, and then that, that, uh, the importance of that warning was shown to me a few weeks later when an employee was fired for leaking. And, and I talk about this a bit in the book, but I mean, it's still, it's still kind of jarring to think about how someone was fired for leaking something incredibly minor. It was definitely not a hit piece. It was definitely nothing, nothing important. It was just um, someone leaked uh, details of a project that Google's working on, and the piece that was written about it was pretty much a fluff piece. It, there was really nothing substantial, and it was incredible that not only did this guy get fired, but the founders decided to announce his firing publicly, uh, well, not publicly, rather just in, in within the company. They got up on stage and were kind of like joking. In one of these big town meetings. Yeah, exactly. And it was, you know, it was kind of jovial. They were just like, just joking about it a little bit like, oh, you know, um, don't worry, we, we've terminated him. Oh, no, you mean fired. Oh, yeah, fired. As if it's funny for these billionaires to be joking about firing an employee and as if terminating him, as if they're killing him or something. It was just, it was, it was really bizarre. And I thought like, this doesn't make any sense. And and also, I, th- I tell you what's also a fascinating sort of vignette of your time there is that you gradually get to be very aware that for the interns who are the sort of privileged kind of future Google workforce, and indeed you, la- you later get offered a job at Google, you know, you get the free food, you can go to the places that you get to take in guests to have the free food, all of the, no doubt, the sort of M&Ms or something, uh, free M&Ms. Um, and... Uh, but then there's another class of worker at Google, the security guards, the cleaners, etc., who sort of kind of mingle with you, but are completely denied all of these privileges. Yeah, I think back then I had, you know, a very a faint premonition of what was to come, but I had no idea at the time to describe it. But what's happened is that um, 
as these tech companies have gotten bigger, they, they may have started out with this plan to be good to all of their employees and to treat everybody to be, really evil. Well, to be a great place. Yeah, exactly. But then, you know, as as time goes on, UIPO, the shareholders come, they, they start looking at your quarterly earnings and they're like, wow, you, your headcount is too high. Uh, why are you growing too big? That's that's a big that's a big liability. And so companies like Google and Microsoft and Facebook, all of these companies, they all do a lot of outsourcing these days and a lot of contracting. And so they all have these kind of two tier workforces where you have the employees who are lavished and given the stock stock grants, um, free food, just whatever benefits you associate with these companies. They're they're the privileged employees. And I think what um, what is often not recognized is that. This group of privileged employees is by nowhere near the vast majority of these companies. At a company like Google, I think um, the last stats I heard were that it was more than half contractors, you know, maybe really doing the exact same thing, but they've just been hired on contract because it's just for a bunch of bureaucratic reasons. But it all stems from the fact that Google does not want to spend too much money. And and the book then sort of the, the next part of the journey is you being offered a job at Google and eventually after much uh, consideration sort of accepting it but then deciding not to take it up because you you found this startup with some of your colleagues and 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 then you tell the sort of story of the the the, the struggles of this uh of this startup and i guess i mean i guess what comes through to the to me as a reader in this is that you you, you kind of go into it with this enthusiasm about the technological challenge but then you gra- gradually over time sort of think to yourself you know well what's the point of this technological challenge if the if its purpose is you know get people you know more sort of accurate eyeballs to put it in a very sim- sort of simplistic way or you know better targeted eyeballs for whoever's you know product it is your your you're selling i mean i know there's no not one kind of eureka moment in when you when the, you sort of decide to be you know when you feel kind of right that's it but just talk to us a little bit about that kind of that that part of your journey because then that takes us to where you are and you and the argument of your book about about where you know about the problems of silicon valley and, and what should happen sure yeah i think there's a conceit in the tech industry among especially among engineers that um it's not important to think about politics. It's not important to, you know, think about all this broader social stuff. All you have to do is just be really good at coding. Be really good at what you do. Be engrossed in the in the the technical aspects. And I, I think I absorbed that from a pretty young age. And I really did believe it for a pretty long time. And I, I think I also used that as a, a crutch when, when my startup wasn't going well. When it was very clear that we weren't, um, we, you know, we weren't growing. We weren't uh, cohering as a team, I would just escape into and, and, you know, go back to my computer refuge, right? Just, just be like, I'm just going to not think about all these social issues for a while and just worry about the code. I'll just make the code as perfect as can be. And I really did believe that. And I think one of the things that, uh, you know, you, you asked for like a Eureka moment, I don't have a Eureka moment exactly, but I do have one moment where I was at this conference in New York city, um, has a, an ad tech conference. I think it was just called ad tech. 
and people were walking around with lanyards. And I think this was just the concentration of the worst kinds of people I've ever had to meet during my <laughs> uh, brief startup career. You know, it's, you can probably imagine the kind of people who are drawn to not just advertising, but to programmatic advertising, to be able to more effectively advertise to people. And it was a very weird place. And I just remember hating myself for standing there, wearing a lanyard, standing in front of our, our booth. So yeah, that was, um, that was hard. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So, so, so that was a, a, a sort of uh, moment. I, I tell you what I thought was interesting for me is that most of the books written by people about founding a startup and, and tech, and I know this is kind of like suggests that I'm rather naive, they're stories of sort of great success. <laughs> so it's quite sort of interesting when you say in the book, look, look, you know, just be clear about this. You know, nine out of 10 of these startups are complete failures. Oh yeah, there's huge survivorship bias in the industry um, because we we most just we mostly just hear the stories of these successes, like for obvious reasons, they're the ones that get airtime. But then that makes people think that the startup world is much more filled with success than it actually is. Um, and I've you know I've read a few stories of failure. There just aren't that many, um, and the ones that do exist, if it's written in the first person, usually it's someone saying, "Yes, I failed, but now I'm going to get back up again and." do the next big thing, you know, I'm going to dust myself off like this failure. It was just preparing me for the next thing. And what I wanted to do was write a book that was rejecting that where I'm saying, yes, I failed, but I did not fail so that I could start a billion dollar startup next year. I failed. And I realized that this whole thing is just, it's, it's a lie. This, this whole thing is, it's immoral. Um, it does not rest on solid precepts and I just don't believe it in anymore. And I think that is a very rare kind of story in the tech world. And I recognize that, you know, it would be, it would probably inspire some backlash and I'm sure some people would just dismiss it out of hand, but it is the story that I lived through. So I thought I should, should chronicle it. And I, t- I tell you what is very um, striking and uh, compelling about the account you give is that Often these accounts are reduced to Mark Zuckerberg's a bad guy, you know, or, you know, uh, the founders of Google are bad guys or, you know, that, that, that it's the people. And you basically take a very different tack. You, you say, well, look, you, you put this in the logic of sort of capitalism and a particular form of capitalism. Just, just say something about that because I think it's an important part of your argument. Mm, yeah, so I think the 
the crux of it is that I really don't think any of these people are just bad people. Um, and I think in, in a sense, like people like the founders of Google, even Jeff Bezos, um, all of these powerful people in the industry, they're really just, you know, following the incentives. They're doing what anyone in their position really would do, but they're just better at it. They're doing it more ruthlessly. Someone like Jeff Bezos, you know, the the way he just keeps expanding Amazon and just keeps dominating more and more industries, even if it comes at the expense of his workers, he's not doing it because he's just an evil, disgusting human being that we've never seen the likes of before. He's not unprecedented. I think he's just someone who's just very, very good at um, doing what the prevailing value structure is encouraging him to do. And that is, you know, expand his uh, his wealth by exploiting his workers. That is just how capitalism works. And he's just good at it. And so I think when we look at the reasons the tech industry um, seems to have kind of fallen from grace, and I think it's it's very important that we tell the right story about it and that we don't reduce it to a matter of, oh, these um, these, you know, young men are just too immature to run these companies. We should replace them with adults in the room. You hear the same story about the financial crisis that um, there was that famous uh, quote from Christine Lagarde when she was, I think, at the IMF at the time. She said that, well, if Lehman Brothers had been Lehman sisters, maybe it'd be different. And you know what? I really don't. I don't think that's necessarily true. I think we're talking about a bigger structural problem. And it's not just a matter of the particular people who happen to be in charge. Sure, those people may have led us down a slightly different path. But I think that, you know, if you look at if you look at the just the the overarching structural forces that have brought us to this point, I think they're strong enough that if someone like Mark Zuckerberg specifically did not get chosen to lead a company like Facebook, we probably would have gotten someone similar to him. So yeah, I think my my argument in the book is that we have to look beyond the individual char- characteristics of the people in the industry, not because that's not important, but because it's not the whole story. And there are other reasons why they act the way they do. Let, let's talk about... Um you know, the, the other aspect of the book, which is what a better, uh, vision of the tech industry could look like. Um, so, you know, I, I guess the opening gambit of a question for this section is what would it look like to abolish Silicon Valley? That's a, that's a really big question. I did my best to kind of sketch out a vision of a world that was different by the same time, you know, I, I find it hard to imagine just you know, especially given that I live in San Francisco, I'm surrounded by all these companies and their billboards every day. But uh, if I had to just like use a word to to start what I just to try to encapsulate what I mean, um, I'm talking about a world that is less unequal, and that's that's not something that is particular to the tech industry. And so when I talk about abolishing Silicon Valley, I'm not just saying that the tech industry has to go away and the rest of the world can stay the same. I'm saying the structures that gave rise to Silicon Valley are the problem and that those have to be reformed, revamped, um, revolutionized as well. And and so the, the way I think about the worst excesses of Silicon Valley is that they come from having too much money concentrated in a very small number of hands. And that money, that money is essentially its power. It's power to shape the kind of technology that gets developed it's power to um, rearrange labor relations. And it's it's this power that should never have been in the hands of so, many, so few people. And it's essentially, um, I think if we're going to find a way to replace Silicon Valley, that it has to be a way of developing technology that's grounded in equality, that's grounded in fairness, in equity, in a more uh, reasonable distribution of wealth 
and giving people the power to actually shape their own destiny. When we think about Silicon Valley, I mean, I think it's worth remembering that there are all these people involved in creating the wealth that has accrued to a very small number of billionaires. And these people have never seen, um, you know, the, the fruits of their labor. They, they've never been able to, to be truly rewarded for the, the, the innovations, the wealth that they've produced. And I think that that is a huge shame. And that's not the story that Silicon Valley likes to tell about itself. So it seems that government has a, a big role to play in this, be it in, in uh, terms of public ownership, breaking up monopolies, uh, giving people rights and ownership of their own data. Can you talk to me a little bit about how you think Silicon Valley sees government? I mean, I think, you know, if you ask a typical founder, investor, whatever, they're going to say that the government should just step back and just let the captains of industry do their thing. And I think they genuinely believe that. Um, and I don't think that's that actually that common, because even though there is a stereotype of the privileged techie who's like a libertarian or whatever, I don't think that's actually that common. Most people who work in tech are not libertarians. Um, and, you know, we don't hear the stories of most of the people who work in tech. We only hear about the the Mark Zuckerbergs, the people, the Peter Thiels, you know, the, the really well-known people who have very contrarian or weird views. What what does a better version then? What do, does a, a better version of governments regulating the tech industry look like? I think there are a lot of possibilities. I'm not necessarily bound to any particular way, but I think in general, what we have to do is shift power um, away from the owners, the people who are currently profiting from the situation, and back towards the people who are the the workers, the customers, the the people, the users, anyone who's involved. I think we just have to redistribute power. I'm pretty open to any efforts that redistribute power, including worker co-ops or um, nationalizing something, making something a municipal service, making it open source, turning it into a protocol in some way. I think there's just like, there's so much um, that can be explored in this realm. And it is really frustrating that the tech industry, which is, you know, filled with a lot of ambitious people, is instead spending all of its time focusing on the the uninformed problems, you know, the just how to how to get more money out of users while like exploiting workers. As far as solutions go, you, you say something really interesting among the different solutions that you propose. You you talk about Elizabeth Warren proposing to break up companies horizontally by undoing acquisitions. And you say that instead their power could be challenged vertically through removing their control over intellectual property. This would essentially tackle their power from the bottom up. And and you then get into this issue, which I think is very important, which is interoperability um, and portability. Just talk to us a little bit about that, because I suspect that, you know, this is more important important than than maybe the lay person realizes mm, yeah so i mean i i think about it in terms of spatial metaphors i don't know if that makes sense to anyone else but it's like the reason these companies are so wealthy if you look at a company like google or facebook i mean they they're they're so powerful because they have these con- these controls over um advertising gateways really right like they are the mediators between the advertiser and the user, but also between the user and the content they want to see, the user and their friends. And so they've managed to control um, access to this gateway. 
And that is a form of intellectual property. The reason they control that is because when you go to facebook.com, you, you know the brand Facebook, you know what it is. Um, you go to that website and then Facebook, the company is the one behind it, directing everything you see on that page. And it doesn't have to be that way. You can imagine a more decentralized way for doing a social network. You can imagine a social network without advertising. And so that the company behind it would never get to be a multi-billion dollar company in the first place. You could um, imagine in the case of, say, Amazon, uh, instead of having this one centralized website where every time you go on the website, it gives Jeff Bezos power, you could have a much more decentralized, um, municipally run service. Maybe the technology would be open source. Maybe the technology itself would be developed in a more centralized way. But the point is the control should not be centralized. And, and Wendy, just so, because for the, for, so we can understand it and our listeners, and forgive me, this is very simplistic, is part of this the notion that Jeff could set up Jeff Book and that the people on sort of Jeff Book could then talk to the people on Facebook without the, the moment in order to talk to other people on Facebook, you've got to be on Facebook. Is is that and and uh, and you're sort of stuck on Facebook if you want to talk to people? I'm sorry to take it down to a sort of rather simplistic level, but just talk to us about Jeff Book. How would doing something about intellectual property or interoperability constrain the power of a Facebook, for example? Okay, yeah. So let's say Jeff decided to set up Jeff Book tomorrow, and he somehow, uh, I don't know, he found a way to like hack into Facebook's API so that someone could go on Jeff Book and all, all of their data, everything would be copied over. It would be completely interruptible. And let's say Jeff Book was just much nicer than Facebook. It would be. And people wanted to use it. I'm yeah, sure yeah. it would be. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and let's say like overnight you had like 10 million users or something. Facebook would immediately say, we're going to either shut this guy down or we're going to buy him. Those are the options because they, they can't have a threat like that, right? Because when people stop using Facebook and start, instead start using your thing, that's taking away at their market share. That's chipping away their power. And what's happened in the past is that there have been startups that have competed with Facebook and Facebook has said, okay, we'll buy them. And when they don't, uh, you know, the startup does not agree to be bought, then Facebook will say, okay, we'll just shut down your API or something. I mean, when we talk about like why Facebook has so much power, intellectual property here, I'm talking about data as well. The fact that Facebook has all your data. And if you wanted to use it seamlessly on another website, there's no really legal way to do that. The, the laws just aren't there yet. You can't just be like, I don't like the fact that Mark Zuckerberg is getting wealthy off of my usage. I want to have the same service and use another, the same experience and use another service. You can't really do that. At this point, you know, the tech industry is still kind of like a wild west, right? And it, it needs, it needs regulation. And I mean, you are realistic in the book that what you're proposing is a very dramatically different world, aren't you? I mean, in a way you're not, you're basically quite sober. I, it strikes me that you're pretty sober in the book in saying, look, there just isn't one quick fix that is going to change this. This is going to require all of the levers and it's going to be really hard. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I believe that now more than ever, <laughs> just lo looking at the state of the world now, I think there is a, there's a time when I first started thinking about how to build a better tech industry, maybe like three years ago when I was very, very, you know, naive and optimistic about everything. And I thought, oh, well, if just, if we just break up a few companies, it'll be fine. And now looking at how deep some of these problems run, just looking at the, the way the US especially has handled the pandemic response, 
just the the way um, you know workers are being left out to dry. I don't think there's a quick fix, and I think we should be skeptical of anyone who does have a quick fix. I think we have to recognize that some of the the problems that we're seeing in the tech industry have been woven into our political economic structures for a very long time, and they're coming to light in this industry just partly because of the fact that the industry has a lot of money and the technology that it's it, it's been able to use can scale very quickly. And so a company like Uber can go from an idea in someone's head to a multi-billion dollar company within a few years. And that is something which is, you know, pretty pretty special about technology. And you know, it's bringing to light all these problems that would have appeared in some form anyway and were probably very very visible to some people, but now because they've they've just dramatically grown so quickly, then we we're starting to, you know, be confronted with by them in a way that we weren't before. So in a way we have to thank the tech industry for making it clear just how how awful these problems are. But yeah, I don't know if I would thank the tech industry. Last question for me. Um, you know, we spent a lot of this interview talking about the problems in tech. And this is not just because we're called reasons to be cheerful, but um, I mean, you still believe that it could have positive, liberating power for the world, presumably. I mean, you know, you, you've seen the dark side of it, but... I guess you must believe that there are ways in which technology can be harnessed for good purposes. Yes, absolutely. And just to give an example, so right now I'm uh, doing IT work for a local nonprofit. And what that really entails is I am helping the people who are working for this nonprofit to um, use technology in a way that benefits them. And so I think that's like a pretty good model for where instead of having technology that you know, dominates people, that controls people, you want technology to be subordinate to actual human need. And in this case, it's a, it's a legal aid clinic. Um, you know, the goal of this technology should be to make their lives easier so that they don't have to waste time, you know, doing things manually when they could be done automatically so that they can find things in a smoother fashion so that it just, everything just feels seamless. And that's, that's what technology should be. Uh, and I think there is a there's a vision of a world where technology is only that, where it's not just about the seamless experience as a Trojan horse for, you know, some exploitative startup, but instead just seamless technology, just um, change like building technology, developing it to make people's lives smoother. And I think that is still a beautiful vision, one I definitely still believe in. Um, it it's not it's not that common, unfortunately, but you know I think it's growing. I think there is. There's a big backlash to um, the way the tech industry has become, and more and more people in the industry are looking for alternatives and different ways of um, building technology so that it's not just about making their billionaire boss even richer. Okay. Well, look, Wendy Liu, it's been a fascinating uh, conversation. We really thank you for uh, joining us. Do you have the number of any angel investors who could invest in Jeff Book? <laughs> I will send this to you separately. <laughs> <laughs> we have this thing actually called the Jeffocracy, but maybe the Jeff book is the Jeff is is going to take over from the Jeffocracy. I mean, it, it will be the, the only Jeff-ocracy. social network in the Jeffocracy. That that's definitely true. There will be no separation of the the state and the uh, social network and, and the social network. But but maybe pending the Jeffocracy, Jeff, the Jeff book is the uh, might be the answer. Uh, Wendy Liu, um, thanks so much uh, for joining us, and and the book is abolished Silicon Valley, and, and people should buy it. Thank you so much for having me. 
Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.